0: Two, three, four. Julio Otino is an artist, researcher, author, and educator at Northwestern University. He was the founding co-director of the Northwestern Institute on Complex Systems. In 2008, he was listed in the 100 Engineers of the Modern Era. He was awarded the Bernard M. Gordon Prize for Innovation in Engineering and Technology Education from the National Academy of Engineering. Most recently, he has been interested in the study of complex systems, as well as the interplay of art, technology, and science. Julio Otino, welcome to The Creative Process.
1: Thank you, Mia.
2: We're so excited. We've been enjoying the Nexus and... I shouldn't say welcome to the creative process. It's been something that you have devoted your life to, creativity across disciplines. But first, I believe you're going to share with us a passage from the nexus that kind of explains what this augmented design thinking is.
1: So the sort of reason for the book, we said today, more urgently than ever, we need to augment our thinking. The world faces enormous challenges of unprecedented complexity. Problems that intertwine in a decently interconnected, interdependent, and changing landscape. The demands are clear. We must adopt new ways of thinking and working that cross the boundaries of classical knowledge and practice. Creativity must increase and execution must excel. How can we augment our thinking spaces to increase creative solutions? And how can we make those solutions real by mastering complexity, by working at the Nexus where art technology, and science converge. I can give you a few words about how science, technology, and art work. Obviously, this is really complicated, so this will go to the core stereotypical components of this. So science builds on the past, and although science occasionally produces radical disruptions, like the Copernical worldview, evolution, quantum physics, and post-DNA molecular biology, The idea of incremental progress is wired into the very fabric of science. The biggest discovery of science is science itself, is how science grows. In a normal mode, science is about methodically building another knowledge. So let's leave it in there that science is now the ultimate open source enterprise. The open source enterprise and the idea that the biggest discovery of science is science itself can be connected to Francis Bacon. Bacon's idea way ahead of his time was that if science was a shared enterprise, something that relied on a process or a method, it would not have to rely on occasional geniuses to advance. Technology, on the other hand, is both about building and disrupting. In a way not dissimilar to science, most technology follows the path and builds on what has been already accomplished. But disruption in either minor or major scales is essential for growth. The culture of technology embraces innovation and has developed the mythology of the garage. Now, Modern art's aspiration, is not on art, I'm talking about modern art. Modern art's aspiration is uniqueness. Disruption and progress have little or no meaning. The challenge for contemporary artists is not to extend an existing historical cultural line, the role has been handed off to craft, but to break from that line and create a territory not already occupied, a new form of expression that is not necessarily better, but different and distinct enough to be recognized as a new space. Today's artists need a logo, a personal DNA that they can own. At best, art does not solve problems, it creates questions. There's no inevitability in art. The history of modern art appears to be driven by replacing and disavowing heuristics. So, because the science edifice is built layer by layer on the foundation of previous science. Uh, Newton's remarked, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants is built into the fabric. In technology, however, the only reason to stand on the shoulders of giants is to crush the elder giant. A new technology appears before the old one has run its course. And in art, now, it's a bad idea to stand next to anybody. Derivative is not a bad word in technology. Adaptations and remixes are good. But in art, derivative has a negative connotation.
2: Throughout the nexus, you really get us to question our values and what we should be working towards. I believe that the overall aim of the book is not just to inform, but to inspire. How can we apply this design thinking to a variety of disciplines and even to areas where we might not think of it, that there, there are elements of design like government and institutions.
1: I love when someone comes with something that they discover, that they have known, and somehow they see the connection with the book. The last one I will tell you is this. So what we tried to do with the book with Bruce was the book as a design object encapsulating this message of the intersection of art, technology, and science. We wanted the book to have many layers. And when you open the book, this integration to hit you in the face. And two days ago, a Jewish friend came and told me the story about the fellow who was in Venice. He was Dutch, I think, who decided that there was a market to print books in Hebrew, in Venice, in 1500, and he showed me one page of the Torah. You see that without knowing any Hebrew, it hits you on the face. I mean, printing this in 1500 must have been impossibly hard. There is a central rectangle in a large font surrounded by a layer, a corona, of observations about that central part, and then two more layers of a smaller font about comments about the comments. And this was in 1500. And you see that composition and you recognize this is about the big ideas and comments on the ideas. I love that someone, in this case, this friend, got to see that connection. That's fantastic. This is what gives me the most pleasure.
2: Yes. And at that time, of course, science and art were more closely linked. Science, art, and religion, in fact. Yeah.
1: yeah. Even the names didn't exist, really. Science, as The word scientist, for example, is one of the times in which we know exactly is 1834. The word scientist, someone was reviewing a book of an English woman, wrote this book, and a fellow named Weevil, who was amazingly good inventing words, the word anode cathode came from him. He could not use the term up to that point, man of science, to review her book. So he invented the word scientist, and that's how we have it. So technology, of course, existed since the beginning of time, really. But the word technology is also fairly recent. One observation made is the first time that a president of the U.S. used the word technology in a speech. And yeah, the things existed, but didn't have names.
2: One element that you discuss in your book is ways of thinking and you know, everyone has a different way of learning and I guess in terms of their primary senses where it's more nested within images or language. And it's interesting what you draw out there before a term exists, we think about it maybe more broadly. When a term exists, it can tend to even limit the way we think about it. So the language we use is important and it's very interesting that also it can limit the way we see as the goal of our solution. We can get very excited about innovation to the point of maybe not really understanding the core of the problem. How do you draw apart those two kind of conflicting aims, the pursuit of innovation and maybe addressing our present challenges?
1: Well, starting with the first part that you mentioned, once you have a name for something, especially on disciplines, it is almost an instant sense of us within the name, and then the outside. So I think that if anything, the goal that we have in here is we go through life building these mental libraries, education, really, that's the whole point. is we build these libraries in our brains that give us this lens to see the world. There's more volumes in that library. And at some point, for many people, they are happy with the library. It's not a rational decision, but. There is a resistance that no volumes, no information come, and if you cannot file it in exactly the right location in your mental space, it's not a space in that library for this is the space for books to be filed at a later date or maybe discarded. I think that what conspires in having a frame of mind that becomes narrow is that the lens becomes more rigid. It probably can go deeper. The lens that not allow you to see connections with other things. I think is the main impediment to coming with really interesting solutions. I really do believe that some of the most important things are to be found at intersections. And once you have put labels on things, I mean, there are exceptions. There are people who keep growing and growing and growing. You don't have to look very deeply into the website to see that you are in the category of someone who absorbs information and like is curious. Many people at some point, they're happy with where you are. There's going to be room for specialists. The question in here is, is there value in cultivating people who have this ability to operate at the intersection, who understand how others think? I don't think appreciating art is the goal of this book. In some cases, that people from the art side tend to think of people in science as rational and logical, and somehow emotion doesn't count for much. That's what prevents this connectivity. But fortunately enough, There are enough people who I think are happy to operate at these intersections.
2: Yes, and we spoke to many of them and I know that you are one of them and you teach this of course in Northwestern and coming up through engineering and through your mother is an artist, your father a scientist, already it's in your DNA. I think this mixing of the different creativities, it must be said. I think it's so important because while we speak about the neuroplasticity and of children and when they're forming to have I knew, these different ways of seeing the world, I don't think that there's a difference between artists and scientists. It's just that the products they make are different. Their process is very similar and it's. Yeah, yeah. So when you speak about this openness uh, to not define ourselves, this is something that we have as children. We don't yet. Understand that it's not possible to be like a ballet dancer and a scientist and make buildings. We have all this possibility. And I think that it's a great skill to learn how to maintain those enthusiasms as we become more specialized. Now, how do you do that?
1: Uh How do you do it? I mean, it can be done. It can be done because I see this with, for what I'm trying to do, by the way, to be a former dean is better than being dean. But being dean, it's good in the sense that I have been able to operationalize some of these ideas. So I can see how they work with young people. And when people get fed into higher ed and you go into the branch of science and engineering, are people who have done well in high school in math and that kind of thing. But you want to see in those people an inclination or a desire to broaden the thinking by just talking with people who are different. Having an artist at large here is important. There are enough of those people. But the problem is that in most educational environments, the urgent takes precedence over the important. And what we're talking about in here is something that is important, but it's really urgent because you have to do it. It's not part of the list of requirements. They be curious, connect with other people, try to have interesting conversations. People tend to follow a script. So I think you have to have A desire from because it makes you feel good or because it's like reading to kind of maintain relationships with people and readings that are not part of the normal thing that you consume. In some places, we try to make it part of the core, back in here, but in many instances, it's not. I mean, you are a student in, I don't know, IIT Bombay. I mean, it's a place I respect a lot. The director of IT Bombay for 10 years was one of my students. In there, it's all about excellence in science and math. But there are people who have this desire to broaden themselves. And then when they finish, they can sort of blossom and see, wow, I could do these things. Sometimes they discover that. And it's great to see
2: Indeed. Well, we know that the curiosity and creativity is very important, but in this life, as we know, gets in the way sometimes. And the imperative to find funding and justify one's funding, of course, is something
0: you're always balancing. So when we were talking about this inclusivity of bringing different groups together, how was it something that you wanted to tackle in your book, making sure that everyone is able to read all the topics and it's something that can be easy for general audiences? I know there was a certain part where we looked at the chronological order of chairs and how that is something that's really applicable.
1: It's, it's a bit different. Before that, we had these paintings from Basquiat being the newest one and Kandinsky be the oldest one, and there are two paintings by Gerhard Richter, which... So different. Now, in artists, representation and abstraction kind of occur within the same person. The key in the book, by the way, there are many things that one leaves in the cutting floor. You say what you want to say, and you know enough about that to sort of round up the conversation. But I took pains, for example, to say I'm not trying to go into anything that goes deeply into neuroscience. Because, first of all, I wouldn't have a lot to say. And whatever I say, I will leave some people wanting in there. But there are parts in which I could say much more, the idea is to, and I have no idea if we have achieved this, is to have some level of uniformity, if you want. Some people will want more of some things. I just don't say enough. And some people have to kind of leave the game a little bit. But we did not want this to sound scholarly and sort of unapproachable. We want it sort of hit this middle ground in there, but we wanted to have different layers, even as a reader. And we put something about how the book would be read and we made some analogy with jazz and music in there. Because to some extent, this is not a book that it's consumed in a linear way. You could jump in different locations and read them and hopefully those sets of things will make sense. But the idea was to strive for something that was a middle ground, even images. I mean, for every image that we put, there were two images that we couldn't get. Really, we tried to get an image from Walter de Maria. He's run by the Dia Foundation. He has these lightning fields. He puts his steel rods in the desert in Mexico and waits for us. That image was fantastic. We couldn't get the permit. But the idea was to have enough to kind of maintain a constant level of attention, no matter where you jump. That was the goal.
2: I think it generated the excitement, which we know because, of course, we've spoken to Bruce Miner's in previous interview, and he's generating a lot of excitement in terms of empowering people to think of themselves as designers when they thought, oh, I, I work in a hospital. But in fact, they have good design thinking and ability to implement things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just not thinking of themselves in that way might prevent them from going to the next step. So I think that it is a great primer across disciplines. And that it does inspire us to then go further within our particular discipline or outside of it to find out more yeah. about that.
1: Working with Bruce was a fantastic thing. I mean, as I explained, so an exhibit that he did. He took over the Museum of Contemporary Art in 2006 and I wanted to meet him. And then I discovered that he was moving to the U.S. Then I discovered he was moving to Chicago. And then I discovered that he actually bought a house across mine. So... The first interaction that we had is what became like chapter four, I think, a comparison between art, technology, and science. And when you compare them across how technology is always somewhere in the middle, borrowing from art and science. And since then, I mean, we have said in talks that the book is a result of 12 years of coffees and two years of soap talks, but it has been an amazing. However, one thing that is really interesting, when people have described the book, it's not like I produced all the text and he didn't have any influence. It has been really, really a collaboration. I am amazed on how open Bruce is to ideas. In things in which you think that he will know best, but everything was a discussion, great discussion. I don't think we disagree on anything. At the level of message, it was always the discussions.
2: Yes, and that of course is a great art to even put across, I think, you might have had going in a slightly different direction, but to make it seem that you're going in the general direction, and um, to put across it in a way that you're having the same idea, that itself is a skill.
1: It, it has been great.
2: And so uh, another thing that is, I think that uh, designers and engineers face is we're talking about the pursuit of novelty and whether we can make in this transitional decade, the rapid adaptation and changes to our current systems, not just seeking to change the surface, but our whole energy system. Absolutely.
1: Well, so first of all, about technology and innovation, progress and progression, they don't always align. You can always see progression. That doesn't mean that it's progress by whatever way you define it. I think being aware of having a wide lens on how complex and interactive the world that we live now is, and how one small change can produce ripple effects through the system, which was not the case in 1850. There were problems mostly in Ukraine. The supply chains will not be greatly affected. And now you experience this integration along financial networks, supply networks, communication networks, being somehow aware of some basic elements of complex systems, in my view, I have been un- unable to incorporate that component in teaching across the board because teaching is accreditation and a whole bunch of things. The other thing is the concept of emergence. A- emergence is something that should be much more known across the board than is now. The idea that you put elements and they synergize in such a way that you produce an outcome that could not have been predicted from the elements themselves. And this is at the level of organizations, physical systems, ecologies, a whole bunch of things. I would say we hope that whatever we put in there kind of finds an audience and is incorporated at least in some people's thinking.
2: Yes, and the natural world, of course, is an expert at emergence because only the most successful idea succeeds and evolves and continues in other species. And you've also written, which I think is very important, because you've identified that you believe that an important characteristic of a leader is the ability to create the conditions for successful emergence.
1: Absolutely. I think that no matter where you are, you want to have that. What conspires against that is organizations that are rigid in the structures that they have where you want every piece to be fixed in some kind of location and there's no appetite for some chaos at the edges. If you don't have some chaos at the edges and no matter how good the central core is, at some point the central core becomes obsolete and if you don't have some ideas in the periphery, you are going to disappear. And that applies to us. I mean, for example, as a researcher, you can be great doing one thing, and at some point, the world is telling you, we heard enough about you. There will always be a market for your ideas, and you have to be able to evolve and pick another idea. But this applies also at the level of Organizations, all sorts of organizations.
0: To follow up on that, about making small ideas turn into these big realities, in your own lives, how you were the founder and the co-director of the Northwestern Institute on Complex Systems, I was just kind of curious about how that idea came to fruition and how you built on that to become this more prominent thing and how it worked towards sustainability and renewal energy.
1: So, I mean, leadership in universities is not given, you take it. That you are a master of your own destiny, you can create your job description, many people don't use. So the way that complexity came into being was I was part of a group that had to decide the next level of excellence. It was the excellence committee. And somehow the idea that cross-linking was good. We came up with the idea of doing domain dinners in which there will be people from different schools. The common subject, present provost, will come, we'll discuss this, we'll share things, let's see where it goes. So I was repostled for that with another colleague. At one point, we ran out of topics. And I said, I need to come up with a topic. And I said, what could be a topic that will cut across many areas, from sociology to biology to business to areas of technology? And the idea of complexity came into being. And so I decided that I will round out people and share ideas among faculty. We did this for about a year, and then we discovered we got something together. So the idea was kind of pre-formed that when the opportunity of creating an institute, we were ready to go. The thing that was the most rewarding about that was that out of that sort of vectors all coming into this region and coalescing and synergizing, you could identify sometimes subsets of other ideas that probably should shine with their own light. One was, for example, in the area of biology and engineering, synthetic biology. So it became a separate thing with all the caveats of having names and something that was called finite earth. and which is a good name based on base that we are all connected in here. The idea of sustainability and resilience came from there. A computational social science, there was enough of a group with networks and this and that. So you can curate lots of things in the landscape of a major university. You have to find the people. Everybody feels like they are operating at capacity. Very few people think that, oh, I have 5% of a unused time that I would devote to new relationships. If you go there, you have to give a compelling vision of the future, of what this new thing could look like if we are successful in doing it. And I have been able to do that over and over again. Not every idea i had was great, but it can be done. You can curate lots of little TED conferences within the landscape of people operating in any major university. You just have to find them, put them together, and see if something emerges out of that thing.
2: Yes, and because you've been successful in it, I would like to know how you defined it. It's also another challenge is how do you define it, but also keep the dream and the possibility without limiting it? And then when you were able to get the finance and the institution, and as it was being built, how did it get redefined through the various inputs from faculty, students?
1: Well, I mean, the students, the easiest one to motivate in an institution. And you have to recognize that if you want to change the culture of a place, the residence time of undergrads in any place is about four years. PhD is about five, and faculty is about 30 or 40. They have long careers, only three titles, so it's hard to motivate them with titles and not do it. But the undergrads, at least in the U.S., uh, you have a lot of the ability to customize your education. There's enough flexibility in most domains to have components, to have a year abroad. My own son spent about six to eight months in science Paul in Paris, sometime in Berlin. So you can do that. PhDs is different because they are all paid by some agency, the National Institute of Health, Department of Energy, that kind of thing. But within those constraints, you have to sort of identify the number of people. It doesn't have to be even half of them. It could be 20% of people who have an appetite to connect with other people and see things that they had not been expecting. We have been able to see among the faculty and the students, and they can Sort of tint the place a little bit like a restaurant could be, I don't know, French food, but with Japanese overtones. The overtone of the place could be this connectivity. Foundations could be the same as before. In order to be an engineer, for example, you have to do this, that, and that's kind of fixed by accreditation. But you have a lot of ability to decide what these overtones are, what will sort of tint the whole place. So if you have a place that evolves to a culture of collaboration, at some point, it becomes sustainable. Most people look for these things. The new people that come, they come because they expect that. It's really interesting how that can influence the kind of people that you attract.
0: As a current undergraduate student studying primarily science, it was really interesting to hear Julio Tino talk about the intersection of art and science. Even in my limited experience, It seems as though science is all about logical and rational thinking and art is all about creativity. It really didn't occur to me before listening to this episode that both can be pretty intertwined. This topic also really connected with me when looking at how to effectively communicate science. As said in the episode, communication of problems are important because of factors like complexity. For instance, how do you tell someone about a complex problem without simplifying the matter too much? And I found this pretty applicable to what I've recently been learning in school. For example, when looking at scientific graphs and writings, it seems as though a lot of the portrayal of science recently has lost an artistic flair to it in the sense that those graphs are not easy to understand and are pretty boring to look at, at least in my opinion. In one of my classes, we focused on how to make graphs, and science more fun to observe and better at simplifying information to make it applicable to everyday audiences. Because not everyone studies science, and it's pretty unreasonable to find these complex figures easy to look at and understand when you aren't studying science on a daily basis. And while I wouldn't consider myself an artist, it was interesting to tap more into my creative side and mix art and science together instead of separating completely and try and make those hard graphs prettier and simpler to look at while not trying to take away from the message of the science. What I can take from this episode with Julio Tino is to dive deeper into my artistic side and expand my mental library in the pursuit of science because it's important to not lose that creative side of you. And because I know that one of the aims of
2: the book is to really address some of our complex problems. And on the one hand, this innovation, but on the other hand, trying to live within the bounds of our resources. Like this year, we had Earth Overshoot Day in July 28. We're just using too much. We're producing too much. And of course, this is also another aspect of innovation that we make so many different things, but at some stage we have to scale back and some people ascribe to degrowth models or different, Uh reconsider our economic systems and our production models.
1: There are many ideas that you scratch your head as is there a need for cryptocurrencies? Is there a need for, is anybody really dying to have, I mean, there are benefits for all driverless cars. I think people underestimate, problems because either A, they cannot see the impact of really small numbers, and they cannot see the impact of really big numbers. For most people, they don't see the difference matching between a million and a billion or a trillion. I'm talking about the bulk of the population. And the amazing impact that something at the level of parts per million can have on the environment, for example, our imagination is limited by those two sorts of bounds. And our inability to see connections, and also there are many things that govern our world that are hidden. There, I have a section in the book about when we try to explain something and we try to create metaphors, we come up with this mechanistic description. You may not know thermodynamics, but you kind of can see how steam power works, locomotive works. But I don't think people can explain how GPS works. However, our lives are completely dependent on these hidden systems that we don't understand.
2: Yes. And, and in fact, someone had pointed this out to me as well, that we have the knowledge illusion. I don't know if you have read that book, but we have this impression that we know so much and also our internet and all these things it makes us feel like because we have information at the axis of our fingertips that we know a lot more than we do. But if you ask people, how does Something as simple as a toilet work, they can't explain it. Of course.
1: No, I haven't put this in the book, of course, but assume that you are transported with your knowledge, but naked, to the time of the Greeks. How do you convince these people that you think you know more than they do? Forget about convincing them with math. Most people cannot do it, okay? Biology, I don't know what you can do. So you have to recognize your own limitations. And the fact is, we have built crutches that there are many... Things that we had, that were human competencies that have been outsourced forever now, like reading a map. Our ability to find knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I remember not long ago, growing up, being in the house of someone, asking a question, the person having a big library behind, and you ask a question and they could go pick a book, open it, and the answer was there. That was super impressive. It was like the pure manifestation of a culture person that will have this information at the fingertips. Now, information is freely there. What we don't have is sometimes the ability to process, even with data, data that is just there without being managed.
2: Yes, and you identify something there that if you were to go back to ancient Greece or let's say modern equivalent, in ancient Greece, you would find that a lot of people would have a greater knowledge of the whole community, the system. They would actually innately know what a circular economy is. Uh, because there would be these exchanges. Or if you go into a contemporary equivalent, if you speak to, say, a small farming community, they really know, because that's an interdisciplinary study, they understand how the different sectors of the economy work because they have to interact with them in order to plant Uh their crops, sell them to market. But we have lost that through our specialization.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and there will always be a role for the specialist. There is no question about it. But I think that the ability to find... Solutions and to find things that come from a broader set of opinions depend on our ability to have some of these nexus connectors in there. I don't have a magic number as to how many you need. There are people working organizations and they're friends of mine and they have made some interesting observations in there. I put some in the book, something about Broadway music and themes. But the whole point if I'm successful is, although this is hard, I think you can teach people to be more creative, but it's hard to teach people how to be more curious. That's really hard.
2: Yeah. Cause once you're curious, then you begin to see, I don't like to identify them as problems, but you begin to see, oh, there's a space for something new here. So I think you're right. That's the first step in creativity.
0: When we're talking about how there are certain specialists in different areas and how we could communicate these ideas to other people, I was wondering what you think certain successful tactics could be in trying to communicate these ideas, whether it can be applicability within their lives or mechanistically, the way we talked about. Some people don't know how certain things work, if it's better to take that approach.
1: I think sometimes, I wouldn't say lecture people, but for example, within engineering, You have people who are very much like scientists and people who are close to being people who work in operations, mathematicians. And then you have people who are in computational thinking. Now, I know that there are people on computer science who have argued very eloquently in books that they have found parallel-wise is the closest thing to hackers are paint. In fact, I did a book with that title, Hackers and Painters, An English fellow wrote that one. Sometimes what you have to do is to bring things that should be part of the education, but they have never bubble up. For example, we use math. How is that mathematicians think? It's hard to find mathematicians who are very eloquent explaining how they think. But broadly speaking, they are the Platonists, which they think that mathematics is not invented, it's discovered. I thought a theorem was always there and at some point we saw it and we made it visible and some people think that some things are invented. We rarely have these discussions that go to tell me how you thought about this. And if you can have conversations at that point, I always try to do that with my colleagues. Then the possibility of you understanding how someone came up with an idea that to you may have looked But you can understand more on how you can link to it and add value to it. For example, there are things that seemingly look magical because you see the final thing, but they don't see the evolution and all the thinking and different branches that went nowhere until finally something emerges, and you declare, "What? that's the thing. You have to overcome stereotypes, and we have a lot of those.
2: Yes. And also there is that gap between what people say they think and what they really believe. And of course, know, the centuries-long beliefs that are passed down to them. We can have a separate discussion about China and maybe human rights issues, but I always thought it was interesting that they appoint, and some of this is changing now, but they've appointed engineers and scientists to dominate the top political offices.
1: Yeah. It was even more prevalent before. I remember... One of my colleagues who went to China 20 years ago or more, all the Chinese were engineers. And the people here, they were historians. I know Chinese, they bought the rights to the book, by the way. I do not know what that means. I know that they have been trying to infuse things with more liberal arts education because there is a danger in linear thinking. Sometimes the ability of looking at things from multiple angles is something that maybe people in science An engineer should be more adept at doing the ability of contemplating lots of possibilities without converging into anyone. I think it's important as well. We tell people there is no big prize in solving correctly what turns out to be the wrong question.
2: Yes, just going back to that issue about whether we might, in the West, appointing more engineers and science to hold political office, I think we've definitely seen in recent years, and you do write about this as well, our increased connectivity. It creates situations of greater opportunities, but also chaos and instability. And I think we've also seen politically in recent years the emotional triggers and the way it's very difficult to get things done. We we'll would be endorsing the Chinese system, but I think it's interesting.:
1: I think what you need to have is people who can listen to others' viewpoints. The way that people process information is not rationally for example, that's the main problem if we had fantastic AI to advise us on decisions besides knowing. How is that the decision that the program will make for us is done? AI being endowed with some degree of empathy will go much farther than just pure rationality. But that applies to any conversation about almost any topic. Unfortunately, the world looks really nice and clear when you have a single lens view of things that are either black or white. And the problem is that most things are scales of gray.
0: When you're trying to look at other people and make sure that you're listening to their ideas and the intersection of ideas, how do you utilize simplification of concepts without losing the complexity of the problem when you're trying to find solutions to all of these?
1: The number of people in science who are able to explain things to the outside in terms of metaphors is small. And still today, even though there are people who are able to market themselves better than in the past, People who are very really good in communicating to the outside are kind of suspect. Carl Sagan, for example, there was a scandal. He was not elected to the National Academy of Sciences because some people, he was too popular. So you need to be able to explain things without thinking that reduces the rigor of the problem itself. But if you want to communicate the ideas to someone else, you have to find a way to produce some explanation that people can relate to. Who was the fellow who wrote Jurassic Park? So Michael Crichton wrote the book, and then there was a movie, and he was crucified by many people for inaccuracies in the book. And he gave a speech at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he said, scientists complain that media doesn't understand them more than 25 years ago
2: we recently had a conversation with Jack Horner the paleontologist on just this right. subject he was the key advisor on the Jurassic Park films of course science is always free to amend itself so his view of dinosaurs and what was possible and to you know animated dinosaur from a piece of amber they thought at that time they thought it was possible but of course then they amend their vision and now he believes that dinosaurs were very much like birds and were multicolored yeah, and yeah, yeah. happy creatures so a little bit different story than portrayed in Jurassic Park.
1: Yeah. And this idea that Ed Raschka said, science is truth found out. What happens is the truth can always have some revisions. And this is what people from the, oh, well, this is changing. It's not settled. This is problem. That's how science evolves. Sometimes you have an approximation that is so good that 99% of the time you can use that. Newtonian mechanics serves for most things on Earth. Oddly enough, it doesn't help you with GPS. You have to have some relativistic corrections in there. But I do not know if that has to do with how people get educated. And also, it's another thing. In some things, the broad public respects the opinion of experts a lot. You see this in cooking shows, the chef comes. But in some other things, they don't trust anything. Their opinion is as good as anybody else's and not be solving one job, but The idea of explaining things in simple terms sometimes is good. Some things is hard to explain in simple terms because we don't live in this mechanistic world in which people can relate it to something that comes close to their experience. But it has to do with how we educate people who can be more respectful of opinions. I don't know if you've ever seen the debates Gore Vidal and William Buckley. These are two people who hated each other nevertheless could have a conversation. I I wish we could go back to terms like that. You want that kind of intelligent debate. I like to see opinions that even if I disagree with, they are articulated well enough that I can say, wow, that was good. Scientists complain that media doesn't understand them, but the opposite is also true. It is scientists who do not understand media. You need both things. There's still the number of people On science and technology, who can explain things in a way that the broad public can understand is small. We need to do a better job on that. I'm not sure the book does that.
2: I think it's a big mission for one book to explain the whole world. In fact, we've often had problems when people try to explain the whole world with one book. It can cause conflicts because then somebody else comes up with their book and say, no, our book does the truth.
1: no, No, I mean, it's impossible because you are always going to leave people.
2: Yeah. Going back, it seems those debates seem quite elegant. And even when people were disagreeing, there was the ability to listen at length and to digest and to synthesize or offer an opposing view, but it was very diplomatic. And it's a completely different landscape to this dopamine driven news cycle where you're no. learning something, it's trying to hit those emotional buttons and it's something you have to fight against very much so. And so, of course, you know, reading and slow discussions helps us understand more. you're talking about being able to discuss something simply. You're touching also a bit there on. Like intuition as well. Sometimes we know things without realizing an actu- it's actually a compression of a lot of complicated calculations. That
1: uh-huh. f- so are you talking about the role of intuition? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really believe in much in epiphanies. Sometimes an idea comes complete because you found the last piece of the puzzle, but you had all the pieces and cow lying in there. If I have had some good ideas cannot recall the moment in which the idea didn't have a eureka moment. In fact, I think that the idea of creative spark and epiphanies is one of the main impediments to people kind of explore more their creative ability. We tend to think of people in art as almost constantly inspired, and that's not the case. They cannot see the sweat that you go, show up, and work. So that doesn't mean that there are no Eureka moments, but I think to think about those as small things. There's a colleague of mine who wrote the book, the title is Eureka Moments. So they have they study individuals, they wire them with things that they can see brain activity, and they ask them to look at puzzles, simply enough that if you really close the outside world and you think about this, you will be able to solve it. Like word puzzles that kind of thing. Why did Part of your brain is focused on that specific thing. There is some background part of your brain that is making more random loose associations. And at some point, the solution emerges and they can see that half of a second before it's verbalized. Yeah, there are things in which at some point you see something complete way in your brain, but I don't think that that's how relativity or quantum mechanics or evolution came into being. It's a smaller thing. If you ask me when was the time that I had the idea of doing something about this intersection, I cannot tell you. I mean, I have no idea when the idea occurred to me. I remember thinking about the idea, doing some paintings, putting some sketches, putting them on the wall. And at some point, the idea looked like it had been with me forever. But I don't remember when it was. That it click. Yeah, Other people may have different experiences, but sometimes you think they shall be with you in some way or form forever.
2: I think that that really is. And some people don't like this concept of like improvisation or that the idea doesn't belong to you. But I do feel that in some, I know. One resists and one knows it's the result of hard work and experimentation and, you know, listening to others. But at some point, if one can forget this shell that we inhabit and then this little brain here and somehow tap into something that's out there, and that might sound transcendental or it might sound a little bit, you know, you know, airy. But in fact, I think that when we forget about self, we can transcend it and just be a great listening post to what's out there.
1: Yeah, I think that you have to have the ability, especially in groups, to say, look, I'm going to put these ideas in there. Just look at them. My worth is really not connected with you accepting this. Just look at them. Don't analyze them sequentially. Just leave them there. Put other ideas that may compete with other ideas. But a curse of over-analytical thinking is that you tend to judge them one by one and have only one evolving. Whereas sometimes you want to leave them there, kind of floating in space. Eventually they will vanish, but you want to see the interplay between those things. I think that people coming more from the art side have more of an ability of doing that than people who have trained more systematically in hardcore engineering. So that's why the conversation is valuable.
2: And this is truly the definition of augmented thinking or, you know, enlarging our mind. Your definition of augmented thinking isn't how I traditionally defined it. I always thought it was the merging of technology and human intelligence. To you, it is a stepping beyond technology. Just tell us how collective intelligence can help, you know, guide corporations or governments or universities or societies.
1: By augmented thinking, what I mean is, which by the way, if you have an organization composed of a lot of people. It will generate ideas. But if those people are similarly trained, with similar backgrounds, you may get lots of ideas. However, all the ideas will be somewhat similar because they emerge from these rather homogeneous set of people. So the whole point of diversity, adding to the wealth of ideas, is the point of having more diverse ideas. The best way to have a good idea is to have lots of ideas, but the, lots of ideas have to be different from each other. What I call augmented thinking in here is not like our intelligence aided by AI. We can discuss that. I have been really interested in AI and art now because of all the examples where AI can contribute, what has reached the press of picturing the Colorado State Fair with enterprise is probably the silliest of all examples that I can think of. No, it's ideas emerging from People who come from humanity, social sciences, history, whatever. People from different backgrounds and experiences. That's what the augmented set is, in my view. I also make a big deal out of to what extent the ideas that you generate can be different enough that at some point is not a breakthrough. A breakthrough, in my view, is you have the possible set of ideas that constitute the domain In one space, let's say it's architecture, and if prior to 1970, and all the ideas are in there, and someone comes with a new conception, you increase the set, you break through the domains, you make something bigger. But at some point, there may be ideas that you can call a break with, because in order for this idea to live, you need to abandon some assumptions that you have made in the past about this set. For example, what John Portman did in the mid-70s in architecture. Why we put the elevators as a design component of the building? That's different or put them outside. No one was thinking about that. It's not a complete break but I think moving from abstraction to representations, that's more of a break because it's just a different ballgame. Everything that you know is really not much use to this new way of thinking, in terms of probabilities, that kind of thing. That has a consequence that the domain that was called physics now has a part called classical physics and a part called quantum mechanics. And after that, you can have something condensed matter physics and the, the domain becomes bigger. The knowledge needed to advance one of these domains is different than was needed to advance the previous domain. All the assumptions have to be abandoned to handle the new thing.
2: Well, it gives us lots to think about. It makes me also question why we're sometimes so dissatisfied as a species. (laughs) There's something about us that's always wanting to innovate, which is beautiful. And sometimes I think maybe we innovate too much. I don't know what it is that drives us.
1: Well, I think for some people it's like breathing. I always see something, sometimes it's so perfect, but many times you think, how could I have made this differently? or better, or sometimes simplifying it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, one of the comments that I got that I loved the most about the book was someone who was in the audience of a talk and wrote to me a long email. Uh, He said, I just finished the book. I, I wanted to write sooner, but I was busy finding a successor for Michael Tilson Thomas. He was the director of the New World Orchestra. And somehow, a presentation spoke to this person. And that was fantastic. Uh, The other comment that I got once, an English couple, the podcast theme is AI. It's called artificiality. When we were finishing, the woman says to me, well, you know what? This book could not have been designed by a machine. And I love that. Of course, if you produce two books like this, yeah, a machine can probably copy. But I would say I'm happy that this version did not look like that.
2: Oh, it definitely has an, an artist's eye and ear and in its whole organization, this boundless curiosity. So, you know, as you think about the future and education and what were some important teachers in your life and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
1: I learned a lot on the outside from my mother. She was classically trained and I remember going through her work. She gave me the first brushes and oils. And he was just by seeing things, at one moment you hear some comments about perspective, somehow become part of you. And by about 10, you are doing things. I owe a lot of my education, really, to visits to museums. There were not that many museums. I don't think I ever saw Matisse in Argentina. I mean, they were good painters. Lucio Fontana came from there. But in every city I visited, needless to say in Europe, you can go on. That will be part of what you normally do. But even if I was going to give a talk in Cincinnati, I would want to try to visit what they had. And the US has accumulated a lot of art over the years. And I think part of who I am is owed to that continual sort of visits there. Although I remember, I'll tell you, in the category of learning experiences. I did a solo show in Argentina. It, it was odd because at the moment was a, I was an officer in the Navy. And this is when people were vanishing right and left in Argentina. So for me, painting was cathartic. The exhibit was in a place that was sponsored by the Spanish government, Spanish Cultural Center or something. And they had a whole collection of Ortega y Gasset, La Revista de Occidente. And just seeing the, them there, the space that they occupy and the ideas that they had, I may have been able to look at three volumes, but you get the sense of how much of a gap there was in between where you were and where you could be. I thought that was something that I remember vividly. But of course, if I have to name something that I saw for the first time, I saw with awe of everything that I have seen in Europe, it was the pantheon. That, that I, I would have to put that at the top of the scale.
2: Yes, and it's, a, you mean in in Greece, across from the Acropolis Museum.
1: Yeah. It's okay. an
2: interview with the former president. He's just recently passed Demetrius Pandormalis. Yeah, yeah the,
1: I saw that. So.
2: Thank you, Julio Tino, for sharing your curiosity about the world, your designing methodology that inspires us to open our minds to the nexus of art, technology, and science, and new ways of thinking to face today's challenges and find creative solutions to design a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mia and Ria. Thank you so much.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Rhea Patel with the participation of collaborating universities and students. An associate interviews producer on this episode was Rhea Patel. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbath. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for a review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.